This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu. Remarkable group. One incident I do want to point out uh, in the marriage. After 14 years of marriage, in January of 1742, something very strange happened to Sarah Edwards. She had an intense religious experience. Some scholars have called it a nervous breakdown. Let me tell you the story. Edwards was away in 1742 uh, out on preaching. And while he was gone, his pulpit was filled by a fellow by the name of Peter, uh, Samuel Buell. B-U-E-L-L. Samuel Buell. B-U-E-L-L. And Buell gave a series of very stirring sermons. Uh, and Sarah was present at these sermons. And as a result, she was absolutely overwhelmed. She began to faint. She saw visions. She was overcome with religious ecstasy. She was so overwhelmed that she was unable to take care of her children. People saw her acting very, very strangely. And they realized that she was not, that she was neglecting her family. And so people in the church went and, and grabbed Sarah, took her, put her in bed, and took care of her children for her for a few weeks. Uh, it looked, for all intents and purposes, as, as if she had flipped out. Jonathan Edwards comes back and the town is buzzing with the news of Sarah's uh, spiritual ecstasy. And so Edwards went and he talked to her and he says, Sarah, what happened? And she began to relate that she had experienced God's blessing in a way that she had never in her life experienced. She told him about some intense feelings of joy, a sense of, of enormous assurance, a level of assurance that she never had before. And what's very interesting is that Jonathan Edwards believed her. He did not think that she'd had a nervous breakdown. He thought that she'd had a visitation from God, in effect. Uh, now, what I think is again, is so terribly interesting about this. We're talking, folk, about Calvinists who have these intense religious feelings. And Edwards believed that despite the fact that she was a Calvinist, that he was a Calvinist, one could have a special blessing of the Lord. Isn't it? She attributed this, as did Jonathan, to the work of God. Sarah, in a few weeks, sort of 
regained her balance uh, and went back to the normal activities of life. And yet, Jonathan Edwards said there was something slightly different about her. He noticed, he said, he said she did all as the service of love and so doing it with a continual, uninterrupted cheerfulness of peace and joy. He noticed that she was seen to be a little happier, a little more full of joy after this experience. And although Edwards does not mention his wife by name, it's pretty clear that in his book in 1742, his book entitled Some Thoughts Concerning the Present Revival of Religion in New England, that he describes uh, some of the, the describes his wife's experience, the spiritual uh, ecstasy, and he affirmed that uh, this seemed to be a result of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Very interesting stuff. Uh, in 1757, the great Jonathan Edwards was appointed president of Princeton University. 1757. And then it was known as the College of New Jersey. I like Princeton better myself. And Edwards, uh, being the progressive that he was, shortly after uh, arriving in Princeton, decided that uh, he would be willing to be a guinea pig. And because there was a smallpox epidemic, he decided that he would get a vaccination, a very new and experimental uh, treatment. And it killed him. He was vaccinated against smallpox, and the vaccination killed him in 1758. Now, what is also extraordinary about his death And again, I want to read the words of Sarah Edwards. She had uh, just learned that her husband had died. And she wrote a letter to her daughter. And this is one of the most extraordinary uh, letters I've ever read. You can see that she was a Calvinist. She writes to her daughter, What shall I say? A holy... And good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Notice that her husband's death was something God did. And she acknowledges that. And listen to this. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands over our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore His goodness that we had him, Jonathan, for so long. But my God lives, and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are to give all to God, and there I am and love to be. Uh, Those devotions at night, those times on horseback, had had a tremendous impact upon her. Uh, Theology made a difference in the way she handled the the greatest grief of her life. Uh, I think it's remarkable uh, that she 
acknowledges straightforwardly that this is the work of God. And then she says, may we kiss the rod, the rod of God. Uh, that's, that is wonderful, wonderful stuff. Okay, let's uh, work on uh, his theology briefly. Uh, just, I'm going to just try to pop through this as, I, as, as fast as I can. Now, what you find in a general sense is Edwards is, has two main sources theologically. One, the Reformation, the, the Luther and Calvin, and also Puritanism. He is uh, a Puritan, American Puritan. Uh, one of the things that needs to be said, however, is that he simply didn't uh, mimic uh, the Reformed tradition. He also was influenced by other uh, movements, other intellectual uh, traditions. One finds, for example, and this may shock some people, I don't know, but that he seems to have been influenced by John Locke. Sorry, I didn't say that. And some of his psychological ideas. Uh, he also seems to have been influenced, at least a little, by a group called the Cambridge Platonists. Uh, I, I guess we could talk a lot about that, but I think we need to keep moving. Uh, my point is, is that he didn't simply sit still. He kept thinking and growing and learning. He appropriated what he could from uh, contemporary intellectual movements. Uh, what I've done here is I've talked about his theology undergoes some changes, some modification, in confrontation with two uh, forces in his period, in his life. Dead orthodoxy and confrontation with enlightenment ideals. Uh, how does he fight dead orthodoxy? He talks about Christian experience. He draws upon his Puritan heritage that validates Christian experience. Uh, not at the expense of theology, but nevertheless, there needs to be such things as true repentance. He talks a lot about the heart. Uh, I really like Edwards at that point. Uh, the heart is, is the center of who we are. And he gets at that and saying that that needs to be recovered. And secondly, he confronts enlightenment ideas. And again, he turns to the heart as one of his leading ideas. Uh, the heart is the seat of one's uh, essential being, and uh, he, he calls that to the fore, talking about that against the rationalism, which emphasizes the mind to the exclusion of the heart. He fights the Enlightenment rationalists on an ethical basis, from ethical concerns. We look, for example, uh, on an economic sort of matter. Adam Smith the great economist, says that self-interest can be pursued with a clear conscience because such self-interest inevitably tends to benefit the whole of society. In contrast to that kind of enlightenment, rationalistic thinking, 
Edwards insists on true virtue, seeking God's interest first, not self-interest. Just just one mention of something else here that I call panentheism. P-A-N-E-N-T-H-E-I-S-M. Don't confuse this with pantheism. Panentheism, something a little different. Panentheism is uh, something that, that Edwards came up with in retaliation against deism. Deism, you remember, puts God over here and the world over here. It puts a big difference. God is not active in the process of this world. Panentheism is a concept. Now, Edwards modified it somewhat. This is what he came up with. It is this notion that all of creation has that no independent existence from God. Uh, it has a lot to do with aseity. And is sustained, that is, this world is sustained uh, by God's very being. So panentheism is this idea that creation has no independent existence, one. And number two, God sustains this universe by His very being. Against the deist notion of enlightenment rationalism. And he would turn to passages like uh, Colossians 1.17. It's really closer, yes. It, I mean, it's, it's certainly under that general category. And it also has to do with the seity, A-S-E-I-T-Y. This idea that God is, is the self-existent one and all things have their existence in Him. One thing to touch on just as well. Uh, Edwards and those who advocated the Great Awakening were criticized uh, because of this, this over-emotional uh, response of the people. Uh, the great critic of this emotionalism of the Great Awakening was Charles Chauncey, C-H-A-U-N-C-Y. He was a Boston pastor and he criticized all these emotions. Now, Edwards' response was, first, yes, there are some extremes. Yes, there are some extremes. However, by and large, he defended the notion that emotion uh, was a part of this great awakening. Another thing to note about Edwards, he uh, encouraged a post-millennial eschatology it's an optimistic eschatology, an idea where God moves through the church to bring in the new age. They borrowed the ideas of Daniel Whitby, W-H-I-T-B-Y. And because of his influence, this, this notion of postmillennialism gained credibility because of Edwards. Well, the church issues in, brings in the kingdom. No, there were there were some ideas of that sort that had pre that existed before, and he takes it and modifies it somewhat. People think that perhaps that he did uh, adapt an older idea. Okay, you find the reason I hesitate is because. That idea has come to be associated with process theology today. And I want to make sure that we don't associate Edwards with, with process theology. 
So he does make some modifications uh, of, a, of, a, of a view that had pre-existed before him. No, this is something that scholars looking at Edward's thought say that he holds to a, at least a modified form of this. Again, let me look at the, the Great Awakening just, just to talk about uh, this movement in itself. We can say that the Great Awakening began November the 2nd, 1739. The Great Awakening began November the 2nd, 1739 because that was the day that Whitfield stepped off the boat and set foot in Philadelphia. He was planning to go to Georgia to establish an orphanage. But people uh, heard him preach and they kept saying preach again and again and again. And so he finally decided to go on a preacher to preach his way to Georgia. And so instead of making a direct route, he preached wherever he had an opportunity on the way. And you find tens of thousands of people who are flocking out to hear him. He made a total of about, I think, seven preaching tours of the colonies. And as you might expect, this kind of preaching did arouse opposition. Uh, there were a number of folk who were not happy with him, but again, to refer to Charles Chauncey, in particular, uh, was concerned about the Great Awakening. Uh, what's this, an infiltrator here? I know. I noticed that too. Anyway. <laughs> so, Whitfield is blazing across uh, the eastern, eastern seaboard, and there is some opposition. Charles Chauncey, and again, the basic concern is about this emotionalism. One of the associates of Whitfield was Gilbert Tennant. And Gilbert Tennant preached a very strong sermon entitled, The Danger of an Unconverted Ministry. The Danger of an Unconverted Ministry. Well, if you were... Uh, a lot of folks, people like Charles Chauncey, were deeply offended because they felt that Tennant and Whitfield and others were suggesting that he, because he did not go in for this emotional kind of preaching, was therefore unconverted. Created real hostility between uh, Chauncey and the others. So Whitfield and both Gilbert Tennant were challenging, uh, raising questions about the unconverted ministry. Now one other thing happened that really discredited uh, uh, Whitfield and Tennant and the others. There was one fellow by the name of James Davenport who was one of these uh, evangelical preachers, one of these great awakening preachers. And he was very, very emotional. In fact, uh, he brought great disrepute upon uh, the movement as a whole because he did everything he could to whip people up into a frenzy. He seems to have been almost encouraged fanaticism. He himself was uh, kind of off the edge kind of a guy. Uh, full of denunciations, he took 
those kinds of concerns raised by Tennant and Whitfield to be careful about an unconverted clergy. There was a, there was a caution in Tennant and Whitfield, but there is no caution whatsoever in Davenport. Uh, he claimed, in fact, the ability to distinguish the elect from the non-elect. Uh, and he was telling people who was elect and who was non-elect. Charles Chauncey was non-elect. Uh, Davenport proved to be mentally unstable. He was jailed and finally declared insane. Uh, but he created such a bad image of those who were denouncing the, the unconverted clergy that uh, you find very quickly that Whitfield and Tennant are quickly having to defend themselves and then disassociating themselves from Davenport. It is interesting to note that Davenport, later on, once, he, once having uh, done his time in the asylum, uh, gets out and writes a letter to all of the main leaders of the Awakening apologizing for his fanaticism. And he repents of his uh, attitude. But it did have a negative impact on the, the, the Great Awakening as a whole. And this, of course, then, when you have opposition to the Great Awakening, you have two groups beginning to emerge. And that's where we get the so-called old lights and the new lights. The old lights are the Congregationalists who hold to the Chauncey view of things, a disdain for emotional preaching. The new lights were those who supported the revival. If we can put percentages on things, about a third of the clergy in, in New England supported the old lights, about a third supported the new lights, and the other third just preferred a bud light. They were the ones who, who were too busy and, and were not all that concerned about all this. Bud light, you know, you never, you never know. These things can come up. Just a quick thing to note about uh, the impact of the Great Awakening. With this, 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 uh, this new movement coming in, uh, it crossed all denominational boundaries, all colonial boundaries. And what it did is it bound people together, the Great Awakening did. And it reinforced this old Puritan conviction that we were a city on a hill. What it did, in fact, is create a sort of national consciousness. Remember now... We're talking in the late 17th, early 18th century. You have, a, you have groups, you have areas settled by different groups, uh, different religious affiliations. In Maryland, for example, a lot of Catholics there. And you have New England, the South. And these people didn't have a, a very much of a national identity, uh, a fragmented group of people who happened to be coexisting side by side. The Great Awakening, one impact was that it created a sense of national identity. What we're seeing here is the beginning of a feeling that we are a nation. 
So the Great Awakening contributed to that notion. Not, not, not directly. What you find is just this sense where before you had different groups. And when this, this movement sweeps through the eastern seaboard, uh, you find uh, a growing sense that, you know, we, we have some of the same beliefs they do, even though they live in a different colony. And so there was this cohesion that came out of that, of the Great Awakening. It, it's, 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 a, it's a phenomenon, a, a movement that transcended uh, denominational boundaries, transcended uh, state boundaries or, or colony boundaries. Uh, let me talk about Princeton theology. Uh, we still are living with the legacy of Princeton, even in our day. Uh, just give you one quick example. In evangelical circles, one of the crucial issues has been and continues to be this notion of inerrancy, about biblical authority and inerrancy. And the group of people who defined that, infallibility, inerrancy, a high, high view of Scripture... That, had, that really was uh, fully articulated at Princeton at the turn of the century, the 19th century. What I want to look at then is this uh, four individuals who held the chair of theology at Princeton from 1812, its founding, to the early 1920s. The four men were Archibald Alexander, Charles Hodge, A. A. Hodge, and B. B. Warfield. Archibald Alexander first, date 1772 to 1851. This guy was phenomenal. He was the first professor at Princeton Seminary, and he established the framework that gave shape to the theology of Princeton for well over a century. Uh, he had been the president of Hampton Sydney College when he was called to be the first professor at Princeton Seminary. And in his first year, get this, guys, he taught all of the classes in all of the courses. OT, NUT, systematics, practical theology. He did it all. Yeah, this is, this is something. Uh, the next year, they actually hired somebody else and then uh, Archibald Alexander focused on systematics. But he's the one who set the stage. The second great chair of theology was Charles Hodge, 1797 to 1878. Hodge was in that first class of seminary students to come through Princeton. Uh, and Hodge and uh, Alexander... Uh, were very, very close. In fact, Charles Hodge named his first son after his professor, Archibald Alexander. That's where you get A.A. Hodge. Hodge initially, initially was an Old Testament professor and later moved to systematics. And we still have, still see, his three-volume systematic theology uh, used still as a textbook in some places. Moving quickly to uh, A.A. Hodge, 1823 to 1886. Uh, Hodge is generally not as famous as his father, Charles, 
that's a little unfortunate uh, from my perspective. Uh, the one work that we have of A.A. Hodge is his book, Outlines of Theology, or Outlines in Theology. It's really a very good little book. If you don't have it, it's one that you, you, you might think about getting. In 1877, he was invited to Princeton Seminary, and it was a colleague of his father's for one year. Charles Hodge died in 1878, and they asked A.A. A. Hodge to succeed him in the chair of theology. Uh, and he, uh, although he didn't, he wasn't as famous. He still was was a very good upholder uh, of this tradition, the Princeton tradition. And then there was B.B. Warfield, dates 1851. To 1921. Uh, probably, it's hard to say, but, but certainly one of the greatest theologians at Princeton was B.B. Warfield. Uh, he had sat under Charles Hodge and uh, was, was just a, an outstanding student. One of the things that's a little different about Warfield is that he was not much of a churchman. You look at the Hodges, and they were very active in the church. But Warfield was not nearly as active as a churchman. Uh, there are probably a couple of reasons for this. One is a different kind of personality. He was very reserved, somewhat aloof. And the other reason is that his wife was afflicted by a disease, and he had to take care of her. And so he wasn't as free as he might have been otherwise. B.B. Uh, Warfield's one of his great tasks was to fight against Protestant liberalism. Talking about Albert Ritchell and Harnack in particular. Machen himself said upon the death of Warfield in February of 1921 said, it seemed to me that the old Princeton, a great institution, died when Dr. Warfield was carried out. As Machen, J. Gresham Machen. Well, that's a very brief sketch. Uh, if, you, if you look at the Presbyterian Reform Publishing Company series that, that publishes, edited by Samuel Craig, uh, they have uh, his view of inspiration, biblical authority, biblical theological studies, Calvin and Augustine, about four or five volumes, shorter writings and so forth. I think in the first volume, there is a relatively brief biography of 30 or 40 pages. But in terms of a full-length biography, I don't know of one offhand. Project. Okay, let me look at briefly the theology of this Princeton school. There are a number of themes uh, that the Princeton school is known for. The first, Scripture. It was a fundamental conviction of the Princeton theologians that the Bible 
was the Word of God. They held to a very high view of inspiration. Uh, and that has, uh, in many ways, defined what modern evangelicalism is today. They've had a, a major role in that. Uh, we find, for example, that Archibald Alexander, in his inaugural address in 1812, stressed the importance of scriptures. Hodge carried on the same view. Hodge spoke of verbal inspiration. And in particular, A.A. A. Hodge and B.B. Warfield really carried the, the Princeton view of Scripture to its highest point. In fact, A.A. A. Hodge and B.B. Warfield collaborated in a series of articles on inspiration. Uh, in, it went from uh, yeah, 1881 to 1883. There were eight articles published in the Presbyterian Review in which the Princeton view of Scripture and inspiration was clearly articulated. And Warfield and Hodge worked together to define the Princeton view of Scripture. And there are a number of things that characterize this view. First, they are the ones who talk about plenary inspiration. That is to say, an inspiration that applies to all of the books of the Bible. You hear this language, plenary verbal. Uh, well, it goes back. The clearest articulation of this goes back to A.A. A. Hodge and B.B. Warfield. They also talk about inspiration being verbal. That is, applying to every single word of the biblical text. They are also, that is, Hodge and Warfield are careful to distinguish their view from a dictation kind of theory. Dictation theory being that God somehow zaps you and you, your personality is in no way reflected. Uh, the biblical writer's personality is in no way reflected in what he actually wrote. Uh, they distanced themselves from that. The Princeton view did. Now, one of the things I should probably say... Oh, I'll mention this as well... They, they use the phrase primarily infallibility rather than inerrancy. But it's very clear what they mean by infallibility. For example, in one of their articles, Hodge and Warfield write, the scriptures are not, not only contain but are the word of God. Hence, all of their elements and all of their affirmations are absolutely errorless binding and faith and obedience of men. Uh, infallible is yeah is is broader. It's a it's a broader term. It has to do with this broader idea of the trustworthiness of scripture. Inerrancy has to do with the accuracy. So so you can say then that that inerrancy is sort of a subcategory of infallibility. The problem with the word infallibility is that those who hold to limited inerrancy have, in some cases, appropriated that view and say they affirm infallibility. Yeah. 
stronger. Well, the, the problem the problem with the word infallible today, I mean, it's a perfectly legitimate word. But what's happened is that term has been emptied of its old content and a new content has been poured into it so that neo-Orthodox persons can talk about infallibility when they don't mean by that term the same thing that B.B. Warfield and A.A. Hodge meant by it. So uh, it's, a, it's a confusing term for people these days. Uh, I, you know, personally, I like the word infallibility. That's a great word. It is broader. It's, it's a more of a comprehensive term. Uh, but I think in our day and age, when I mean, we don't get to set the boundaries of the battle, the battle is, has preceded us. And other people have, have uh, made further distinctions and used the word inerrancy. So I think the word inerrancy also has to play a role these days because it's, 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 it means it has a certain content, a connotation that helps clarify where one stands. So... Oh, yes, yes, always, yes. You don't find anybody in the, in the 19th century who, who wouldn't make that distinction. Yeah, that's, that's not something that, that just came along in, the, in you know, this century. That's been around for a while. Uh, and this will come as no surprise. Uh, but the other, besides pressing the authority of Scripture, that's one of the hallmarks of Princeton theology, the other part, other uh, distinctive feature is their Calvinism. I love what Warfield said in 1904. He said, Calvinism is religion in its purity. He was a TR, sort of. Uh, one of the things that uh, to note here about their, their, their Calvinism <clears throat> is that uh, they look back in large part to a Genevan theologian by the name of Francis Turretin. I didn't mention, I didn't put his name up there. T-U-R-R-E-T-I-N. In fact, I think our bookstore has the second and, is it two volumes? Two volumes of his systematic theology. And for, for almost the first 60 or so years, of, of Princeton Seminary, they use Turretin as a textbook, uh, and so the uh, and Turretin is considered sort of the prince of the Reformed scholastics. A uh, very heavy emphasis on reason and coherence. Uh, still, I mean, I don't know if you've read it or not, uh, but Turretin is is very interesting. Uh, it's not surprising that Hodge's three-volume systematic theology is not very far from Turretin. It would be very interesting for someone to write a paper or a thesis. And compare... Yeah, I, I think Turretin is very, very useful stuff. But to compare Charles Hodge and Turretin to see how closely the two parallel... Uh, I think there'd be one would would not find very many points of departure between Hodge and Turretin. Just a final note on Scottish common sense philosophy. That also seems to have been an influence and characteristic of the uh, the Princeton group. It originates with Thomas Reed, R E I D, 
And just the, the basic point to be made here is that Scottish common sense realism stresses uh, that truth arises from inductive study. That's one of the things that it means. Truth arises from inductive study. And a second thing that's characteristic of Scottish common sense realism is one can trust uh, sensory information, information derived from the senses. And so what you have as a result is a stress among the Princetonians on scientific investigation, inductive uh, research, as well as a sense that you can trust your senses. That seems to have been something of an influence as well. One thing I want to note, and this may surprise some of you, uh, when you look at the Princeton, Princetonians, they didn't all agree on everything. And one area of disagreement is in the area of evolution. Uh, Charles Hodge said the Bible could not be squared with evolution. A.A. A. Hodge doesn't say too much about it. B.B. Warfield advocated theistic evolution. Is that a thunderbolt? I don't know. But you see, that you see the, the influence of, of Scottish common sense realism, perhaps with his stress on scientific inquiry, uh, may have had an influence here. Uh, it's also probably helpful to, to, to say that. Again, keeping with my, my tendency uh, so that my guess is most of us would, would have some problems with theistic evolution. Uh, the point here is, is that even someone as great as B.B. Warfield uh, held to a view that we would have some reservations about. Uh, one other thing to, to close off here. Uh, I don't know if you stop and think about what, what the heritage is of this particular institution. Uh, certainly there are several different streams. When I was at Westminster Seminary, it's very interesting to look at it because there you find not only the Princeton influence, but you find some new things being added. Uh, and the Dutch reform thought of Van Til. Uh, it's, it's an institution that is named after uh, a, a Puritan document. So there's an English influence at, at uh, Westminster, and there is a Dutch influence at Westminster, and there's this sort of strange intermingling, as well as the Princeton influence. And it's interesting that when you think about Reform Seminary, where, do, where does it fit in all of this? Well, you know, don't you, that in about 1926, 27, Princeton reorganized uh, which created severe problems as far as Machen was concerned. He felt that that let in uh, this Protestant liberalism, made a, made a way for that to, to infiltrate the seminary. And so Machen then left Princeton and formed Westminster Seminary, founded it, brought with him John Murray and Van Til and a few others. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, you probably do, 
But this institution, this particularly Orlando institution, uh, has very, very strong roots in Westminster Seminary. And so I think that when you're looking at trying to categorize and understand this particular institution, where does it fit? Uh, you look. I think a case can be made. In fact, I'm relatively sure of it. That the old Princeton, the new Westminster kind of thinking, with its Dutch Princeton uh, English Puritan influence, has has come to roost somewhat here at RTS. So there is a sense in which this institution can trace back some of its intellectual heritage back through Westminster and back through Princeton. And on that note, I'll end. This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu.